Let's begin with the uh, at-home prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And we'll continue with the... Our hymn of the month, uh, Psalm 146, to the tune of Come Thou Found. Praise the Lord, my soul, oh, praise him. I will praise him all my days. I will sing while I have being. I will sing to God my praise. Put no confidence in princes. Mortal man who cannot save All their plans will come to nothing When they perish in the grave Oh, how blessed the man who trusts in Jacob's God to be his aid Oh, how blessed the one whose hope Upon the Lord his God is stayed. He who made the earth and heaven and the seas with all their store, he who keeps his word forever, he is faithful evermore. He will always render justice for the sake of those oppressed. He gives food to those who hunger, satisfies their emptiness. God releases all the prisoners to the blind, the Lord gives sight. He lifts up those bowed in anguish, and relieves them from their plight. How the Lord loves all the righteous, and the alien defends, helps the orphan and the widow, judgment on the wicked sends. God the Lord will reign forever, Zion's God forevermore reigns through every generation. Alleluia, praise the Lord. Beautiful. All right, let's continue with our catechism memory work. Selections from the Table of Duties, Part 8 of Citizens. So this is what the Bible has to say about citizens to their government, one of the things it has to say. 
We'll read Romans 13, 5 through 7 together. It is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Romans 13, 5 to 7. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and Merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Right, kids can go up to Sunday school. Uh, for the catechism portion of today's Sunday school, I want to start off with one thing from the hymn as well. Uh, Psalm 146 actually correlates really well to the uh, kind of sections we're on about government and citizens in the table of duties. And Psalm 146 starts out, uh, first of all, with the praise of God. It's in that last part of the psalm uh, where the, I think it's, I think like 137 through 150, something like that, um, that are like these praise psalms. But, um, so it starts out with this praise, praise the Lord my soul, praise him, I will praise him all my days. But then there's this line in here, which... You'll hear quoted a lot around election time, which I think is good. (laughs) But uh, put no confidence in princes, mortal men who cannot save. All their plans will come to nothing when they perish in the grave. That's also reminiscent of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 2 uh, talks about the enthronement of the king of the eternal kingdom, Christ, and all... Um, earthly kings bowing before him. And Psalm 110 talks about Christ being enthroned and putting all earthly kingdoms under his footstool. And this is something that I don't think that Christians, your average Christian maybe thinks about enough, is that when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ, this is a, a real tangible kingdom um, in the sense that any kingdom in the history of the earth has been a kingdom that there is a 
uh, an empire and a king and that sits on a throne that rules over that is a government for the people. And we have this idea in America of the separation of church and state, which is highly misunderstood and applied very often, but we don't have to get too deep into that. But Christians do have to recognize that whatever you think about the separation of church and state, that at the end of the world, when Christ comes back again and returns to reign, he is going to establish a new heavens and a new earth, uh, the, the earth that we are going to live live on for forever. And on that earth, it will be the kingdom of God that reigns over the whole earth. And Christ will be on the throne. And that will be our government. Um, you can even think of the, the, the Christmas promise in Isaiah chapter 9 that the government will rest upon his shoulders. Right? So th- there is a Christian government a perfect Christian government, the kingdom of God, that is going to come one day. And uh, so Psalm 146, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, these are great places to think about that. Um, That all the plans of earthly princes will one day come to nothing when they perish in the grave. And then the rest of Psalm 146 is really about the justice that's going to be executed by the kingdom of God. Um, how blessed is the one who trusts in Jacob's God to be his aid. He will always render justice for the sake of those oppressed. He gives food to the hungry, satisfies their emptiness, releases the prisoners, gives blind, uh, gives to the blind sight, lifts up those in anguish, relieves them from their plight. Uh, the the loves all the righteous, the alien defends, helps the orphans, the widows. Judgment on the wicked sins. God the Lord will reign forever, Zion's God forevermore. So it's about, it's this image of the kingdom of God, which we have now as Christians in a, as a spiritual reality, right? For Christians, spiritually, God is, Christ is our king. And he already has come and inaugurated his kingdom in the person of Jesus Christ. And we do live under his kingdom. And we have this aid and this this gift of uh, help from the Lord now. But this will be established in a fuller way in the new heavens and new earth when all the earthly uh, kings are forced to take the knee before him. So on the one hand, we have that whole reality. That we know that we can't put confidences in earth, confidence in earthly princes. We know that, and this is, I mean, in your life experience, you know that the government does not do a perfect job. Right? They, they don't do um, everything that they should, and they don't do things that they should do. And um, their, their plans, like, you know, the... The Fed's plan to just, you know, forever increase interest rates to fight inflation just <laughs> maybe not working so well. I don't know. <laughs> if uh, I heard someone told me yesterday that to have the same purchasing power that you have this time, that you had this time last year, that you would need a 16.5% raise right now. <laughs> it's just a little crazy. Anyway, um, 
But so we know that we can't put confidence in princes. On the other hand, we also have Romans 13, 5 through 7 here, right, which says it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of the possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give whatever you owe him. If you owe taxes, taxes, revenue, revenue, respect, respect, honor, honor. So Paul does command us, uh, and, and this, these are the words of God. These are the words of the Bible. God commands us to give, uh, and Jesus himself rendered to Caesar what is Caesar, rendered to God what is God's. So um, a couple things here. One we talked about this last week, but Paul is assuming in Romans 13 a good government. That's why he says in the, the last last week's verses that we memorized, um, the government is not a terror to the good but to the evil. Right. So the government's job is to preserve peace and punish wickedness. And when they're doing that, then we are to submit to them because that's their job that God has given them to do so that we don't live in – a chaotic society. I would also add that even when the government's not perfect, because um, you can see in the history when Paul is writing this, Paul himself is under government persecution very often um, and has to kind of battle with the Romans on being allowed to preach the gospel. And there are you know, Roman governors who are not pro-Christian at the time. Uh, like Nero or Domitian, uh, he still encourages us to be pro-government in this sense. That the government, no matter how corrupt it is, no matter how sinful it is, right? We, we know we can't put our confidence, Allah, Psalm 146, that regardless, God has still instituted it for our good. And if it is uh, for our good, then we should try and support it however we can. Now, I think there are – this. it comes down to the Christian conscience as to when you make the decision, okay, I can't do this anymore, right? Um, so the Christians in early America who said this is too much taxation without representation – uh, we have to go against the government so that we can ha have uh, freedom in our lives to worship our God and to, to live our lives according to our conscience. I think that's totally legit. Um, there are some Lutherans I know who have argued before that the revolution was not a just war because they should have paid taxes to the government. And overthrowing government is not a Christian thing to do. Normally, but I think, um, and maybe I'm just biased because um, I have ancestors who were in that war or something. Uh, may or may not pay my dues to the sons of the American Revolution, but um, I think that there is there is a time when you have civil disobedience. Um, and that happens in the Bible, right? So Paul himself also participates in civil disobedience at times. Um, we must obey God rather than men. Um, we, you can think about stories that we've talked about before in civil disobedience, like um, 
Daniel in the lion's den, or the 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 three the three men uh, in the fiery furnace, right? So, uh, we are always the Christian is always balancing these two sides, right? These these two facts about government: one, that God instituted government for our good, and we want to support it however we can, uh, so that we don't live in chaotic society, right? We don't want people running through the streets of Memphis shooting shooting up the streets of Memphis, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, maybe the government should do something, right? Um, And then, on the other hand, we also realize that we can't put confidence in them. And that there is time for civil disobedience uh, when they go outside of their authority that God has given them. So, um, we're always balancing those two things. And it's it's a hard thing to do, right? It's hard to say... How far is too far? Um, when do I when do I stop paying this tax? How much is too much? Right. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, but I think those Psalm 146 and uh, Romans 13, you can kind of see that contrast, that balance that we're trying to hold up there. All right. Any questions on that? Verse, yes. Sir. Verse four, second line, and the alien. Oh, in the hymn, yeah. Yeah, stands for, yeah. Yeah, so the issue with uh, aliens and foreigners in the Bible is that these are people in very special circumstances who you know, end up in a country that's not their own for, you know, whatever reason that their life circumstances happen upon that, uh, that has nothing really to do. So the, the question for the, the, the Old Testament Christian when they're uh, dealing with God's law, his civil law, and there's these laws about taking in the foreigners and and uh, defending the aliens um, is oh there's this there's this foreigner here who doesn't have a home and what are basically what are my requirements to take care of him and and the Christian is supposed to to take care of him and there's rules about when and when they can't participate in certain feasts and if they they come to faith and are engrafted into the covenant and all these things um, that this also is an issue of um, well, we won't get into that. Anyhow, that has really nothing to to do with what the government's policy on immigration is. So, if if there's uh, foreigners that are put into your life, uh, should you treat them like humans? Of course. I mean, yeah, of course you should. You should you should love them as your neighbor. Um, the question of if they should. If they should be here as a political question, uh, God doesn't. God doesn't give any. Uh, he doesn't give a. So I, I've, what I'm saying is that I've heard a lot of liberal Christians say that. Um, oh look, there's all these verses about foreigners and aliens and God defending them. Therefore, we should just have open borders. And I think that's a jump from a commands about specifically about the love of neighbor and one's personal life to a jump about political policy that the Bible is not making. 
So the Bible doesn't say, should we have open borders or not? Um, in fact, I would say that if you look at like the Tower of Babel, which is a blessing for people, that, that God makes separate nations so that people can't become prideful and that people can live within their own uh, cultures and nations and tribes and worship God um, with, and each nation can become Christian, right? That's the Gentile mission is that each nation would become Christian. And then at the end of Revelation, you have all the people from every tribe and nation streaming forth into the, into the uh, new heavens and new earth to worship Christ the King. Um, that kind of open borders or um, being like kind of very loose on immigration is actually politically not wise because what you're doing is you're uh, allowing for the pride that came with the Tower of Babel. So um, when you're trying to make a nation too diverse and also historically, whenever nations become very diverse is also when they tend to crumble and fall and collapse because they just can't hold together because they don't have any homogeneity. Um, the Assyrian Empire, for instance, when it started taking over all these people that were not their own, it just could not hold together anymore. So I kind of think that's what might be happening with us. Not exactly sure. Um, we just are so all di- we're, we're so different from one another. We have so many types of people here, and um, that that has never been true in in the history of this country before. And um, everyone is just so divided because of it. So if you like, if you live uh, next to or you happen to know an an immigrant, you know, that's fine. You know, love them as your neighbor. That's separate from the question of what should our border policy be, right? Yeah. I think that it's, it's not that hard to figure out reading the Bible. Most most cities, as they built the city, they built wall, they built walls around it with gates. Right. And if you walked in through the gates, there were people at the gates to, you know, greet you or deal with you or how whatever. Anybody that was caught like sneaking over or under the walls that was considered an, in, an, an enemy or a spy and was dealt with right. accordingly, you know. And so there was, and, and there was also, if you read the law, there was this certain amount of assimilation that was required. Yeah, if the alien was going to be part of your household, they they basically had to fully assimilate. Um, so that's another another point there. Steve, did you have something else to say? Or, uh, no, it okay. was just reminding me of uh, Naomi and Ruth. You know, she was Naomi. <clears throat> yeah, right. So, and and the the interesting thing about Gentiles becoming uh, part of the covenant in the Old Testament is it shows that salvation is always by faith, right? Um, and that it it never actually. Paul will make this point. Jesus will make this point. It never actually had anything to do with being of the blood of Abraham. Um, The blood of Abraham genealogy and the emphasis on Israel as a chosen nation in the Old Testament is primarily 
to bring about the person of Jesus Christ, right? That's and that's why the Gospels, um, well, Matthew and then Luke a little bit later on, but Matthew actually just opens up his Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, which sounds kind of boring, but it's really interesting when you look at it. And he also includes the Gentile women <laughs> in the genealogy. That without these Gentile women who came by faith into the covenant, Jesus himself would not come. Um, and Jesus himself was not actually a pure blood of Abraham, right, in that sense. So very interesting. Um, all right. Let's, that, this actually kind of leads into Amos um, because one of the things that happens with the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom – as we're going back into Bible history today, is that they are eventually taken captive by the king of Assyria, or by the, by the Assyrian Empire. And um, that's kind of what we're leading up to. We, we did already mention it a little bit. We'll probably do a Bible study on the Assyrian captivity um, at, at one point in a couple weeks. But just as a review of how we got here, since I became a pastor, we've been going through Bible history. <laughs> so we've, we've gone a long way. We're, we're getting close to the New Testament. Um, so hopefully you know the Old Testament a lot better than you did two years ago. I don't know. But um, Bible history is kind of a chronological look at the Bible. And we've kind of we've been going through it chronologically. Uh, started with the primeval period, which is Adam and Noah. Patriarchal period, which is Abraham through Joseph. And then remember the Joseph stories, the Israelites, the people of Abraham end up in, in Egypt. And then that picks up with Moses in Egypt. And then the Exodus wandering in the wilderness. And then the entry to the promised land with Joshua in the period of Moses and Joshua. And then we had the time of the judges where after they entered the land... They were supposed to take over, right, on on God's mission uh, to establish the kingdom of God, and they failed because they worshipped other gods. And so then God would send judges, or He'd put them into captivity. Then He would send; they'd repent. He would send judges to raise them up again, and that cycle would repeat in the Book of Judges until eventually uh, judges kept getting worse and worse, showing their need for a true king which got them Saul in the United Kingdom, uh, who was not the best king uh, by the end of his life. Uh, but David was raised up as a shepherd boy, which is going to be important. Uh, so keep David as a shepherd boy in the back of your mind for Amos. Uh, raised up as a shepherd boy to become the uh, best king of really really the, the kind of – you have Moses as the best prophet of the Old Testament – um, maybe along with Elijah. And then you have David as really the best king of the Old Testament, right? No one no one does better than David does. And then, of course, Solomon, uh, who has his own issues but is a pretty good king overall and has um, really the, the kingdom of Solomon is the, the most expansive empire for the people of Israel, uh, for the people of Abraham. And that the kingdom is united and they have this whole big territory where they 
have taken over a lot of what what God originally said to take over. And things seem pretty good until Solomon's sons mess it all up and Solomon's court. So you have uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam and their little dispute, um, which you can read about in the first in the first part of First Kings, first twelve chapters or so. And uh, the kingdom is divided into two, and you have Israel in the southern kingdom, and then of course uh, Judah is the northern. Uh, no, sorry, I have that backwards. I have that backwards. It, it, uh, pretend like I did not say that. Uh, north and Judah's the southern kingdom. Uh, Judah's the southern kingdom. Israel's the northern kingdom. So. Um, if you, I, I did not, I need to print more out. Um, I see Steve and Julie and, and Donna have them. There's the uh, Old Testament Bible history reference packets that I put together. I'll, I'll print more out. Um, I don't, I lost mine actually, so I don't have it. But there's maps in there. You can see this stuff. And then the chart of kings and prophets too is very helpful for the divided kingdom. So what we've done so far, hopefully this refreshes your memory, is that we... We got to the divided kingdom. We studied all this stuff, and then we looked at um, an overview of Israel's kings, of the northern kingdom's kings. Um, and this is the northern kingdom and the, is, the southern kingdom are operating simultaneously, so it's kind of hard to keep everything straight. So we divided it into kingdom, and we looked at Israel's kings, and then we started to look at Israel's prophets. So we looked at Elijah, Elisha, and Jonah. And now we have two more prophets to do uh, in the southern, in the northern. I don't know why I keep doing that. In the northern kingdom, Amos, and then uh, next week we'll look at Hosea. Um, and these are the minor prophets. Jonah, Amos, and Hosea are the minor prophets that uh, prophesy primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel. And um, that's where we're at in Bible history. So hopefully that kind of catches you up. What we're going to do after we do Israel's prophets is we're going to move south. Well, we'll talk about the Assyrian captivity. We'll move south and we'll do Judah's prophets or Judah's kings and then Judah's prophets, the southern kings and the southern prophets. So that's what we'll do after uh, next. And then. Then we'll do the return from. Uh, then we'll do the Babylonian captivity with the Southern Kingdom, and then the return from captivity with Ezra and Nehemiah, and then we never covered the Book of Job, so we'll do that last, and then we'll be done with the Old Testament. So um, we're getting there. We're getting there. But hopefully that refreshes your memory. Does that all track? Does that all make sense? Do you feel like you have a better grasp on the history of the Old Testament? Yes. Than you did two years ago. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> Great. I'm doing my job. <laughs> That's what I want to hear. Um, one other thing I want to point out, I know I'm spending a lot of time in review, but we haven't been here for a while. So um, with the divided kingdom, this is the part that I've been telling, that I've been saying and arguing is probably the least well-known part of the New Old Testament. Because everyone starts to do their Bible reading plan, and if they get through Leviticus, which which can be difficult, I will grant that, then 
it's easy to get in uh, basically through everything else because it's all it's all pretty well known, um, at least somewhat well known Bible stories about you know David and Solomon and Moses and Joshua and all uh, all these things the, ju- the different judges Samson right um, you have well known Bible stories really through all these different periods until you get to the divided kingdom where you may know some stuff about Elijah and that's kind of it um, and unless you grew up reading your Bible very faithfully which if you did praise be to God then um, I I mean I did not. <laughs> This was always the, the, the things that were not taught in Sunday school, right? You get to 1 Kings, and especially you get to Chronicles, and you're just like, oh, this is a lot. And like, they, they prophesied in the time of Uzziah when was this, and, you know, it's just it's just a lot. Um, and there's like, you know, if you look at the chart, right, there's a bunch of kings and a bunch of prophets, for, and there's two kingdoms going on simultaneously that are both really important, and it's just confusing, right? And so what I've been encouraging is to think of the divided kingdom like a and don't take this the wrong way because it is true history but a uh, a true mythology so there are so all sorts of mythologies that we are very apt to learn as humans and people will get very into different mythologies, right? So um, the most popular one in pop culture today is the Marvel Universe, right? Where the Marvel Universe, the superhero universe with all these movies, they have all these different superheroes and all these characters, and they're all interrelated somehow, right? And they all the movies like connect, and different people have different attributes and all these things, and. And if you talk to someone who watches a lot of movies, they'll know everything about them, right? They'll just know everything about the about the uh, Marvel universe, or Star Wars, or Star Trek. These are very similar, or Lord of the Rings, right? Um, and you can get way down into the rabbit hole. You can go on internet forums and you can read about all these things, and um, whatever you know, whatever it is, um, or people could just even have a hobby that they kind of know everything about, right? Um, and all the characters and all the players and who's important um, in their in their various hobby or whatever it is. Well, I'm saying we should think about the Bible as a whole, but especially parts that we don't know, like the divided kingdom, that are complicated, right? Where there's a lot of kings and a lot of prophets and a lot of things going on in different locations and maps and dates and stories. We should think of that in the same way. Right, that we should be willing to put in the time and energy to learn how all these things fit together and 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 what they mean for our lives, right? And the good thing is that when you actually go and read the stories, I know I've, I've it, I don't want to say it's uh, actually boring because it's not. Um, when you actually go and read them, it is very exciting, right? The the stories are. Are great. Like when you read about Elijah and, and Jezebel, right, <laughs> and uh, her her body being thrown to the dogs from the window. Like, I mean, this is kind of exciting stuff. So, um, yeah, well, she did kill a lot of the Lord's prophets. So, um, you know, that this is really exciting stuff. So, so always keep that in mind that we should be 
willing to put in the time, as much time as we're willing to put into the Chronicles of Narnia or whatever, we should be willing to put in that same amount of time into learning about the the Lord's word, right, and what it means um, and what the stories are. All right, so I know I'm not going to have a ton of time for Amos, but that, that's okay. Hopefully that kind of um, – that review is helpful. At, at least for me, I know I have to – go over things multiple times before I get them into my head. So I, I, I do prefer to do some reviews when the opportunity presents itself. All right. Um, so Amos, if you open up to the book of Amos, which is between Joel and Obadiah, it is uh, nine chapters, so hopefully you can uh, find it pretty easily. Um if you if you had Jonah mark still, it's like a little, couple chapters before Jonah. Um, Amos is another one of the uh, prophets for the northern kingdom for the people of Israel. Now, one of the things that's interesting is he comes from the southern kingdom. So, the verse one one, the words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay? So 1-1 gives us a couple of things to notice here. One, he's from Tekoa. Tekoa is in Judah. And it's a border city. It's right on the... It's right near Bethel. It's right on the border of Judah and Israel. Um, I don't know if it's marked on any of the maps there, but it's just south of Bethel. Or, yeah, just south of Bethel. Um, he's from Judah. And what is his job? He was among the what of the shepherd. Shepherd, right? So remember I said keep in mind about David the shepherd boy. Amos is a shepherd. This is very interesting because he's not a prophet, right? He's going to be a prophet, but uh, not every prophet in the Old Testament starts out as a prophet. Some do, right? So Elisha is raised as a prophet. Right by Elijah, he he's raised up as a prophet. Uh, we have the school of the prophets that gets started in the United Kingdom under Samuel. Who starts that? Anyway, um, the school of the prophet exist, exists, and there there are Levites who are raised up, and and others who are raised up as prophets uh, in their places. Um, and you have like like Obadiah, for instance, and the school of the prophets in the caves and all these things. So um, there are prophets that exist that are raised that way. And then there are prophets like Amos who just get called out of their normal everyday lives to go and be a prophet of the Lord. Um, and I and I find that I find that kind of interesting. If you look at seven uh, verse fourteen in Amos, um, 
Amaziah and him are arguing, which is kind of interesting. And Amaziah tells him in verse 14, or Amos answers to Amaziah, uh, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of the sycamore fruit. Right. So he was just a farm. He's just a farmer. Right. Uh, just a just a shepherd. And um, he apparently had an orchard of sycamore fruit. And he gets called out of this to go be a prophet for the Lord. And uh, he does this and he gets basically it's it's also kind of a one time deal with Amos, too. So um, what I would say about the shepherd thing, first of all, is, again, remember, David, right, that the Lord will use the, the least among men uh, for his purposes. And this is this is always an image of Christ, that the cross looks like foolishness. Right. Christ is meek and humble. And the cross looks like foolishness and and folly uh, to the unbeliever, but to the believer it is salvation. So whenever we see something that you don't like, shepherds are humble people, right? And they're they're not like being a shepherd is not the nicest job in the world, right? It's not a white collar job. Right. Um, they're they're getting dirty out there with the sheep, um, and it's and it's hard work and they're lonely. Right. So uh, the shepherd motif throughout scripture uh, carries with it a lot of these connotations. And when God uses a shepherd, he's using someone of humble status to proclaim his message. Right. And this is what happens with David, who becomes the greatest king in all of Israel. Um, and then Amos becomes this great prophet. Right. I mean, you could say, well, yeah, he's a minor prophet, but he made it into the Bible. So he's pretty good. Right. Because um, there are a lot of prophets that didn't make it into the Bible, right? There's, there's, a, there's like, you know, there's hundreds of prophets in the Old Testament. Not a, only, only uh, there's 12 minor prophets, and then there's the what four or five major prophets, right? So, um, yeah, not all prophets made it in. Amos made it in. So, um, shepherd, but as a shepherd of lowly estate, right? This is an image of Christ uh, that he is going to come as a shepherd and 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 proclaim the the vision of God. Um, it's also a one-time thing, right? So he says, I had this vision. Um, these are, these are, this is my recording of the vision I had concerning Israel, uh, in the days of, and he names the King of Judah and the King of Israel, right? Because he's on the border. And oftentimes the time references will name both Kings at the time. So you can look at your time prophet chart whenever you're, uh, you get that, or if you have it, that um, he proclaims this during Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Um, and he gives this also kind of odd time reference in one one before the two years before the earthquake. And no one exactly knows what this means. Um, so very likely there could have just been a big earthquake uh, two years after. Amos prophesied this, and this is kind of um, – this is part of his prophecy is there's going to be a big earthquake in two years, and then you'll know what I said is true. And uh, that's a pretty common way to take it. There, Josephus, uh, the Jewish historian, says that this is a reference to 
when Uzziah storms into the temple, which is recorded in, in the book of Isaiah, Uzziah, the king of Judah at the time, uh, two years later storms into the temple uh, because he's angry at the prophets and uh, and the walls shook. And he says that's the earthquake he's talking about. So maybe that's it. Um, but anyway, the, I think the, the main point is that Isaiah or uh, Amos puts this here probably to show that that people at the time would know in two years whenever something happens that isn't that is clearly an earthquake of some kind some kind of quaking that he was right right that his prophecy was coming true so and obviously his prophecy does come true it's easy for us to see because we know about the assyrian captivity right so uh which is what he's going to prophesy mainly about is the fall of israel so all right uh, that's kind of who Amos is, uh, introductory stuff we get in 1-1. One, one. Um, and uh, he does do, also in chapter 7, um, if you're still there, a couple verses earlier, Amaziah, this is what I was going to say earlier, I forgot about this, um, <laughs> that response when he says, I'm not, I wasn't a prophet, I was just a shepherd, I just had this vision. Um, <laughs> when Amaziah complains to Amos and he says, you need to go back to the land of Judah and get away. Don't come to Bethel, right? So he, he goes from the southern kingdom into the northern kingdom into Bethel to prophesy. And remember, Bethel is where one of their temples is, is where one of Israel's temples is. So he goes there to prophesy uh, to the people of the northern kingdom, which is pretty amazing. All right. So that's kind of introductory stuff. Um, broad outline of the book. Chapter 1, you have prophecies against other nations. And he just goes through a laundry list of the surrounding nations and gives some of their sins and their problems and why the Lord wants to destroy them right so this is never the the going all the way back to joshua and judges right that the lord wants the people of israel to be successful in the land that he promised to give them right and and that's never gone away in the divided kingdom his god's focus shifts to the repentance of his people because uh if we think about it in today's terms, right, a church that that is not functioning well, right? So say a church is bleeding money, uh, their leadership team is all out of whack, um, they're losing members left and right. That church is not going to have a good time trying to evangelize, right? There's a sense in which you have to be healthy before you can help other people. It's like the airplane, right? They tell you to... Put the mask on yourself before you help other people, because if you don't, if you're not able to breathe, how are you going to help other people, right? If you're passed out. So uh, the same thing is kind of true in the divided kingdom: is that God focuses His prophecies against the wicked people of Israel and Judah, so that hopefully they can go out and and conquer these other nations. So. But all along, it's not like those other nations are innocent, right? Those other nations are still being evil. Uh, they're still sacrificing children and having 
uh, homosexual temple prostitutes, right? That the, these things are still happening. They're still worshiping Baal. So Amos prophesies for one chapter against the other nations. But then, for chapters 2 through 6, he's basically going to prophesy against Israel. So chapter 5 within this is this little uh, central, it's right in the middle of the book, uh, central gospel, we'll call it a reprieve, that there is this, in chapter 5, there is this exhortation to repent and seek the Lord and live. Repent and seek the Lord and live. So there's two kind of gospel themes um, in the book of Amos. One is uh, chapter 5, that uh, life comes from the Lord. And then the other one is throughout the book, and that is that there will be a faithful remnant that will stay faithful throughout all the trials of Israel. Uh, there, there will be a faithful remnant that will stay faithful throughout all the trials of Israel up up until the um, the return from exile. Up until the return from exile. So there is there is that in chapter five. And yes, of course, when you have a go- big gospel theme like that, it's going to be a picture of Christ in some way. All right. Then finally, seven through nine is this vision that Amos has of uh, Israel and that includes its destruction, captivity and return from captivity um, so it's a future vision of everything that's going to happen to Israel so it's, it's, it's much more so he prophesies against Israel in 2 through 6 where he's listing their sins lam- excuse me, lamenting over them um, all of these things is the choir headed up? Yes. Um, Sorry. That's fine. I'm, I'm about done here. So we got uh, against the nations in chapter 1, and then 2 through 6 and 7 through 9 are about Israel. So notice here the contrast between Israel and the other nations. That you have one chapter devoted to the other nations. You have eight chapters devoted to the people of Israel. Right? And even within this other nations, he does uh, include, and this does, this isn't exact, by the way, because this goes a little bit into chapter two, um, and he does include Judah in one paragraph as well. But his primary, his primary concern, the vision that the Lord gave him, is to prophesy against Israel for their unfaithfulness. And so, uh, this is a book that you read during Lent, whenever uh, you want to feel really bad about your sins, right? Uh, it's not there's not a lot of hope <laughs> in it for the people of Israel because most people are going to fall away and most people are going to be taken captive and most people are going to suffer punishment for their sins um, and and that is the main theme of the book if I could kind of summarize it would be that God uh, God will punish we'll just kind of put theme here 
God will punish unfaithfulness. But he will preserve a faithful one. He'll preserve the faithful, we'll just say. He'll preserve the faithful who seek him and live and who are his faithful remnant. Uh but God's punishment is coming, and there is a the message of the book is basically there is a time when you've reached the last straw, right? There's a time when God finally puts down the hammer, right? God is God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That doesn't mean that he never gets there, right? He does get there. His wrath does come. And it comes on the people of Israel, in, uh, primarily in the Assyrian captivity. Um, so we'll stop there for now, um, and we'll take any final comments or questions. Next week, we'll finish up Amos by looking at some of the passages. Uh, some of the, the We'll highlight about five passages I have listed that um, give you an idea of the book of Amos. Right? We don't have time to go verse by verse through all of it for our purposes of Bible history, but um, we'll give you about five, five, five passages that, that, that kind of highlight where Amos is and what Amos is doing. All right, any, uh, any questions, comments on Amos? My favorite, my It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, yeah. or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Right. Is not the day of the Lord dark, darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Right. So, um, and while well, he opens up, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord for what is good to the day of the Lord to you. So he thinks. So there are people, there are people who are so wicked in Israel who are saying, to they're mocking the prophets and they're saying, well let the day of the Lord come. What is that to me? You know, and. Uh, that's that's when he gives that description that you think you're on solid ground, but in fact, the second you put your hand on the wall, a serpent's going to jump out and bite you. The second you you think you've you've successfully fleed the line, you're going to run into a bear. All right. Any final questions, comments? Yeah. So don't mock the Lord and His prophets, right? That's the message. That's the gospel message of the book. So wait till you hear the law. Uh, no. <laughs> well, well, actually, chapter five is my favorite because I think the last half of chapter five actually is a prophecy of coming Christ. Oh yeah. Well, the, I mean, in a sense, it's all a prophecy of the coming Christ. Um, that the kingdom has failed and we need an eternal king, right? It goes. It kind of goes back to Second Samuel seven. Okay. David prophesied this eternal king and that's going to reign forever. And we're in this divided kingdom, 
when Israel's about to be taken into Assyrian captivity and the Judean kings have had out of all, you know, 16 of their kings or whatever, they've had two good ones. And uh, they're eventually going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. So where are we left? What is going to come? Who's going to come and save us? Right? That's, the, that's the whole point. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your son, Jesus Christ, the king of heaven and earth. We pray that you would sustain us to the day of his returning, that when he comes and establishes the new heaven and new earth, he would be our king, that he would put all earthly kings under his footstool, and that he would reign eternally as you have promised, and we would worship him forever and ever. We pray that as we have that reality now, we would come today to worship our King in spirit and in truth, that you would bless our worship together, that you would open the hearts and minds of all believers here today to hear your word, to repent of their sins, and to receive the eternal life that you have promised them. We pray this all through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.